Uh, welcome, everyone. A uh, warm welcome to this uh, closing seminar of the Hume Border or Humanitarian Borders uh, project that I have been leading since uh, late 2017. Um, so it's very exciting to, to also be rounding up projects. Uh, my name is Maria Gabrielson Jumbert. Uh, I'm a senior researcher and research director here at PRIO. Um, and it's, uh, it's a great pleasure to see uh, many, both uh, uh, project collaborators, the colleagues, uh, new, and, new and older contacts uh, having showed up for, for this uh, closing event. Um, often when we have um, um, launching events of new projects, we are sharing all the exciting things that we are looking forward to uh, be uh, researching. Uh, we also have on, uh, uh, seminars sort of underway with preliminary findings and things we are um, working on. And now at the closing event, I uh, may raise the, bus, uh, the stakes in a way for myself in terms of presenting the findings. And uh, those of... Um, you familiar with similar projects also know that there are many things that we are then looking forward to, to sharing, but, but it also feels like an, sort of never-ending processes as well. So I'm not unfortunately able to promise you that we have found out everything that needs to be found out, um, there, that there is definitely um, scope for much more research here already and scope for much more discussion and reflection. And that's also why I'm very happy to have you all here with with us today to, uh, to continue these discussions and have your reactions and thoughts around um, what we will be presenting. I will be taking you through um, uh, an initial presentation around the concept of humanitarian borders, where it comes from, how, what, what, what its uses are, and, and a sort of a look back at uh, what were the humanitarian borders in 2015 and the initial years after. And how do the humanitarian borders of Europe look uh, today in 2022? Uh, after that, I have the great pleasure of having um, colleagues, research colleagues, and uh, uh, also uh, practitioners uh, working in this area who will share with us some snapshots, insights into different types of humanitarian borders, different geographies, locations where these humanitarian borders and interactions uh, between security and humanitarian uh, care uh, for uh, migrants take place and different types of interventions as well. Uh, so we have these fellow panelists uh, that I will introduce afterwards. And after this presentation, we will have Polly Pallister-Wilkins uh, with me here, um, assistant professor at the University of Amsterdam, um, uh, who will uh, present uh, also insights from her research on humanitarian borders and comment also on these uh, presentations. Um, and uh, but b before starting all of this, uh, uh, some notes also on the on this uh, project. Um, it has been uh, funded by the Norwegian Research Council uh, scheme for uh, young research uh, talents. I'll say a little bit more about that at the very end. And as I said, started up in 2017. So it has also followed different phases uh, of. Um, 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 of different means of border management and control and different types of humanitarian responses over these years. Um, I'll say a little bit about um, the inception of this project. Uh, the, uh, 
uh, and a short introduction, as I said, to the humanitarian borders concept. And uh, then a little bit also about throughout the presentation about the different types of borders, the air, land, sea borders, how are they different geographical borders uh, governed uh, and controlled, and what are the sort of different means of interventions uh, along these borders. And then um, uh, we will also uh, highlight also these uh, different types of uh, actors, uh, the so-called grassroots and citizen humanitarian uh, actors who have been also been very uh, playing an important role in shaping uh, these humanitarian borders in Europe uh, um, over the past uh, few years. And then some afterthoughts on this uh, research uh, funding. But first, how did I come to, to study this, um, uh, this topic? Um, I started working on the topic of border surveillance in the Mediterranean in 2011, uh, as I was hired to work on this large EU project on precisely the, the building up of more sophisticated border surveillance in the Mediterranean, with the EU member states wanting to build a system to better exchange information and data uh, among them. Uh, this was initially a, an entirely new topic to me that I was hired to, to, to work on here at Frio, as I came from uh, my previous PhD work on uh, the transnational mobilization for the war in Darfur and the South Sudan, and how sort of activists and civil society across the globe, <laughs> or in different locations at least, were mobilizing for this distant conflict, and how it also set in motion one of the largest humanitarian responses in Darfur in the following years. Uh, so initially this topic of technological border surveillance in the Mediterranean seemed to be uh, something completely different and I was looking forward to discovering it as well. Uh, but, it's, uh, but it would also soon come to have many more themes in common in terms of this international transnational mobilization and the humanitarian responses along the borders uh, in the Mediterranean. So one of the first uh, concrete measures that I was following over those first few years between 2011 and 2013 uh, was the establishment of Eurosur, uh, the EU border surveillance system, uh, and the, sort of the preparation of the legisla legislative sorry, document um, uh, preparing for the establishment of this system. One of the, the sort of harshest discussions and sort of tug of war that I was uh, looking at then was this discussion between the EU um, uh, the Council and the EU uh, European Parliament on whether to include uh, the aim that whether Eurosur should also have as an aim to uh, contribute to the improved rescue of migrants at sea. The, the two other um, aims of Eurosur for being established was to combat uh, crime across the borders uh, or uh, criminal activities. Uh, and the second one was to reduce irregular migration into the EU. And some proponents also wanted to include the, that it would contribute to improving rescue. But others said, well, no, the, this, we shouldn't state this as an aim because... Uh, 
the, this, uh, this might contribute to, but we shouldn't state it as an aim because this is not what the, the system is set up for. Whereas others were uh, arguing for, for having this included, that it, we cannot spend all this, in a way, funding without also saying that it will contribute to rescuing more uh, migrants. So this was in the early years. We often tend to refer back to 2015 as when it all started. Uh, but this was in the years between 2010 and 2013 that this was discussed by back and forth. Uh, eventually, the aim of uh, rescuing of, the, of this system, in contributing to rescuing more migrants, was also included, and it was a sort of a, a first meeting for me with this: um, how um, f funding for sophisticated border surveillance and control is is also being justified with humanitarian uh, reasons, even if it, even if in the system there's not necessarily a means to to actually rescue. Uh, people at sea, but there is uh, information being collected. So there's information that is being shared among member states, and we also can argue that if there's information and there's awareness, there uh, is also responsibility to, to follow up on that. But what are these uh, humanitarian borders? Um, sometimes they, uh, I can sort of think about th this as sort of uh, and uh, continuum in a way with the humanitarian concerns on the one hand and the border concerns on the other, sort of as, uh, as uh, contradicting uh, uh, opposites, um, but with sort of maybe different degrees of, of, of different concerns along this, uh, this um, axis. Um, it's in a way where a humanitarian uh, relief and border control uh, meet, um, uh, where humanitarian needs are created by, uh, by borders uh, and border control, uh, where assistance is, uh, and aid is given to counter the effects of border control. Um, and then in turn, this assistance is also being accused of, um, uh, of countering uh, the effects of border management in itself and of perpetuating uh, the humanitarian situation. So these, these tensions is something that we, I will uh, come back to uh, as well. But what are these uh, humanitarian uh, borders? Um, when I was uh, continuing to study this uh, sort of this back and forth of uh, between these humanitarian concerns and security concerns along the borders, uh, it was also a time where we saw increased numbers of crossings in the Mediterranean. Uh, one week, um, or when the the Eurasur legislation uh, was adopted in 2013, it was just a week after the large-scale uh, shipwreck outside of Lampedusa, um, leading to more than 360 lives lost. Uh, and with this first sense of this happening just outside an Italian island, with sort of uh, signals of uh, um, uh, distress had been, had been sent. And it also, it was a, a, an incident that really led to to a vast outcry uh, across uh, Europe, uh, and not only among civil society and humanitarian organizations, but among EU policymakers as well, calling this a shame for Europe that this was happening just outside of Lampedusa. This led to the establishment of the uh, Operation Mare Nostrum, uh, led in the, um, by Italy over a year between October 2013 and October 2014. Um, 
uh, that was framed as a humanitarian uh, naval operation uh, with a, a very explicit mandate to uh, provide search and rescue uh, to migrants uh, at sea. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and then this operation, as I'll also come, come back to, was also uh, seeing that in the course of the time where this operation was active, there was also an increase in the number of migrants uh, crossing the Mediterranean, which may be due to a number of, of different reasons. But uh, quickly, a sort of politicized connection was made, saying that it is due to the search and rescue at sea that we see more migrants uh, crossing. So that uh, that operation or its existence became very um, politicized and uh, Italy called for more support and to, uh, from, from the rest of the EU. But eventually not getting that, it ended, they ended um, uh, with closing down the operation and um, Frontex took over, uh, leading its own uh, Triton operation from 2014 uh, and onwards. So around this time of, of studying this, I also came across this, uh, as many of us studying this, uh, uh, these questions, uh, came across this article uh, or this writing uh, by William Walters, uh, conceptualizing these humanitarian borders and was instantly sort of um, interested in, 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 uh, in this conceptualization. Around the same time, I also discovered the work by a certain uh, Polly Pallister Wilkins here with me to today, who also was writing about uh, precisely the reception of migrants in Greece and the, the and and the work of the the border work of different uh, actors involved in that from the border police to also the humanitarian actors uh, such as MSF. So very much looking forward to hearing your <laughs> reflections from this time uh, as well afterwards. Uh, but one of these things that uh, William Walters was uh, writing about was uh, this sort of is humanitarian borders uh, like it's, it sounds like in a combination of, uh, of contradictory terms. Is it uh, almost like an oxymoron? Uh, because humanitarianism is seen as this force that operates in the name of the universal but endangered subject of humanity. It transcends the walled space of the international system. So we have this idea of the humanitarian being uh, uh, sort of in, indifferent to, uh, to the origins of those who need assistance, um, of being sort of blind to borders. And it's also what is um, sort of fundamentally um, uh, core to the, the humanitarian um, mission, not only for organizations such as um, MSF, Médecins Sans Frontières, or Doctors Without Borders, not only for them, but for the, this sans frontierism, this without borders uh, concept is also very core to the, uh, to the humanitarian uh, field. Um, so, so I was interested in how, how these, uh, how the, what's, what was with this juxtaposition of these two, two terms, because what we also uh, see is that this, um, uh, this founding idea of, the co of contemporary humanitarianism, of being sort of without borders, it also uh, highlights uh, how central borders are to uh, humanitarian uh, aid. Uh, borders can first and foremost be a, we can certainly say relative, but a, a source of protection. People fleeing conflict, uh, persecution, uh, other um, uh, risks in their home uh, regions or countries may often need to cross an international border in order to find safety. Um, 
we also know, of course, that m many uh, are not able to cross the international border, but flee uh, from their homes and, and find relative safety elsewhere in their own uh, um, countries. But, but, of, but the international system is built around the fact that it's the international border that needs to be crossed in order to apply for international protection. Um, this leads also to, to a range of, uh, of the, the, the world's largest refugee camps that have uh, been in place uh, for years and years, being placed on, just on the other side of an international uh, border. Uh, we, have, um, the, uh, we have Somalis in Dadaab, for instance. We have a South Sudanese in Kakuma in, in Kenya, or Syrian refugee camps across the borders with Jordan, Lebanon uh, and Turkey. Um, so, so there's this idea of sort of just the other side of, of the border. Um, the field of humanitarian action is also a field where, uh, uh, where, where sort of donors and beneficiaries, humanitarian aid workers and the, uh, the, the needy are, are meeting. And in a way, it's also a, a place where, which I'm, I'm sure we can discuss more uh, with the different contributors here afterwards, where, um, where we also see sort of... Um, a microcosm of the uh, of international relations and international, uh, in a way, transnational differences uh, between people. So, to put it more clearly, humanitarian aid workers or volunteers who want to provide assistance, they have the, the benefit of being as mobile as they want. They may travel into an area of, of crisis and to provide assistance, and those they provide assistance to, although they would like to be as much um, uh, um, in a way, on equal uh, terms as they want, uh, as they yeah, would like to with those they are providing assistance to. The fundamental difference is that those who are providing assistance can sort of choose to go there and choose to leave <coughs> whenever they want, but those they are providing assistance to don't have the same benefit. And we also see this, these meetings and interactions now with, uh, with those... Uh, migrants who are uh, stuck in different ways in the Greek islands, uh, for, uh, for instance. So this is also another form of border that we, we see at, in the midst, in a way, of, uh, of the humanitarian uh, field. Um, uh, and uh, and uh, we also see this, uh, this uh, how... Uh, what also got my interest in the, at the outset of this project was also seeing the number of uh, volunteers uh, mobilizing to provide assistance to, uh, to refugees and other migrants arriving in Europe. Um, many who had prior experience working as humanitarian uh, aid workers or other types of volunteering, uh, but also many who didn't have any prior experience, but seeing this as something that they were used to seeing happening far away, but was now happening uh, in, in their own homeland in a way, whether that was really in their own uh, city or vicinity, or if just the feeling that they were coming to Greece was still a feeling of this, them coming now to, to us here in, here in Europe. So that's also something that I was interested in, to understand this, this sense of now the crisis is here at, at home, and what that also did to this mobilization um, uh, among new volunteers. Mm. 
so the humanitarian uh, borders uh, today. I'll again uh, come back to my initial <laughs> caveat. Uh, we'll try to, to share some overarching reflections uh, at the same time as I will not uh, uh, either promise to give uh, the, the, the perfect updates and overview of everything that is happening. But thanks, uh, thankfully, I have other uh, presenters with me who will give us some snapshots into some different examples afterwards. Um, some uh, observations when I'm sort of sitting down with, uh, with the, the notes and what we have been doing throughout this, uh, this project uh, are that uh, the borders um, that are often also uh, described as violent uh, borders in the, the, in the scholarship, uh, they seem to be becoming increasingly violent, all the while we are becoming more used to this violence. Um, this also struck me when we were following uh, again recently the, the news events with, um, um, with the Norwegian registered um, rescue vessel in the Mediterranean not being able to dock in Italy. Uh, under the new Italian government and the, the boat needing to wait for, for days uh, in, in a row, uh, finally eventually being able to, um, to dock in Toulon in, in France. Um, and, and, and Norway be, was being called out uh, by Italy saying that you're asking where the boat should go. Well, we say it should go to Norway because it's a Norwegian uh, registered uh, vessel. Um, it's not entirely new that Norway was sort of put on the spot. It, it, that has been uh, done earlier uh, as well and uh, with the um, uh, ocean Viking vessel and Geo Barents uh, being Nor Norway Norwegian registered vessels. Uh, but, it's, uh, but it was sort of done very firmly by the new uh, Italian authorities. Um, and Norway didn't respond directly to that. Uh, maybe you know, political reasons in there, but once it, the uh, vessel had been accepted to dock in, in France, uh, Norway also accepted for humanitarian reasons to uh, relocate uh, a small number of those uh, migrants who were uh, on board. Um, it, it should also be specified that while the boat was waiting outside of Italy, it was allowed to uh, disembark uh, uh, women and children, uh, and, but the remaining uh, men who were on board were of course also being in increasingly um, distressful situation uh, on, on board. So seeing that these situations are lasting over days, uh, it does make the news, it is being discussed, but it's, it's not uh, as much uh, the, um, neither the headlines nor something shocking in a way. It's something we've become almost used to, to hearing uh, about. Uh, then the second uh, observation that I wanted to, to share is this, um, th this need and this fear of saving lives uh, along the borders. So on the one hand, we have this need to save lives that is created by, by the different measures along the borders and uh, humanitarian uh, actors and uh, volunteers mobilizing with this need to, to provide rescue, to save lives, to provide basic life um, um, uh, aid. 
Uh, at the same time, as we also have this fear of saving lives, that is closely connected to this idea that providing basic assistance to, to migrants uh, arriving in Europe, uh, there's the, this um, fundamental belief, again, that, uh, that uh, providing rescue at sea will lead to more migrants crossing the sea, and providing basic assistance on land might encourage more people to, to make the journey. So this connection that has been made is something that is... Um, uh, f uh, firmly uh, anchored in a lot of the policy making happening at the EU uh, level, uh, even if we also know that uh, those connections are much more complex than, than that. The decisions are not made purely, uh, or to migrate are not made purely on, on, on basis of, of uh, food distribution somewhere, but there is this fundamental belief that if food is distributed, more people will come in this way. Which uh, leads to what I have written about as this fear of saving lives uh, that we see al uh, along many of the humanitarian borders of Europe, which in turn leads to states um, criminalizing uh, the provision of, uh, of aid uh, along these humanitarian borders. Uh, we have a, a third observation, uh, which has uh, uh, been... Uh, where there has been awareness of that uh, in the studies and discussions are, uh, around the humanitarian borders uh, over the past uh, decade, that the borders are um, unequal to different travelers and to different border crossers. For some of us, it's very easy with a passport to cross these, uh, these borders. For others, it's very cumbersome and complicated. And that's also why these risky routes are the only routes left uh, to, to, to cross. Uh, but we've also seen uh, that there are different um, uh, different re reception um, uh, crises happening depending on on who uh, are seeking. Um, protection. This was much debated and we can also f um, further discuss this here today uh, perhaps. It was much debated in the context of uh, the reception of Ukrainians after the Russian invasion in February this year and uh, with many raising questions about uh, why Europe isn't able to um, step up its reception efforts better when it's uh, when um, uh, when the migrants arriving are coming from elsewhere than our neighboring uh, countries. Uh, although it was also uh, broadly, although different questions were raised, but also a, a broad sort of understanding that, that the, the neighboring countries of Ukraine were of course also feeling very concerned with the, the, the war in their neighboring uh, country. Um, then a, a, a fourth observation on the coming back to this concept of the humanitarian uh, borders. Uh, initially, when I became interested in this concept and, and wrote up this uh, this project uh, ID, uh, this concept was something that in academic circles you would just maybe need to mention it and maybe explain a little bit around what uh, what what it entailed or what uh, what what it meant. Um, and outside of academic circles, it would maybe require a little bit more uh, of an explanation. Or oh, what we're interested in is these uh, interactions, tensions, but also mutual relations between humanitarian concerns and uh, and security concerns. Uh, but nowadays, I feel that referring to our research on the humanitarian borders of Europe is also, has almost become sort of self-explanatory. There's a sense of, okay, I understand, oh, the Mediterranean, I understand, oh, Greece, I understand. 
So it's become much more, much more an awareness in, in that sense. Um, so this, this is, uh, I'm not a quantitative researcher, so this is not an attempt to, uh, to uh, give a perfect representation of, of certain things along this uh, table, but it is a matrix that I wanted to put up there because thinking about these humanitarian borders on, on the one hand, or the humanitarian on the one hand, the borders on the other, but also understanding that they are sort of mutually interdependent and feeding uh, each other's concerns in different ways. Uh, and also reflecting on this, the, this standoff between Italy and the, uh, and the rescue vessels in the um, uh, Mediterranean. Uh, because in that context, you see that Italy is, uh, again, is not, is not just brushing off the humanitarian concerns. They're not, they, they will even argue that we cannot save these lives here and now because we are concerned about the future of this route. So the justification for not taking in more people right now is of course migration or immigration concerns, a refusal to take in more people and wanting to put a stop and an end to this mi migration route. But they will also refer to this um, larger humanitarian concern of preventing more people from taking this risky route. So you could argue that this is a sort of a long-term humanitarian concern. So you have those who will uh, whose primary concern is the immediate, that's the mandate of the humanitarian organizations, such as MSF and others, to uh, rescue lives. And it's also the mandate, to, to remind that, it's also the mandate of any uh, vessel at sea to provide search and rescue if they come across another vessel in distress. So that's a fundamental obligation under the law of the sea. But, but there you have an obligation to provide life-saving rescue, Imminent for, uh, in the face of an imminent uh, danger. Uh, then, uh, but, but you also have those who will argue for, no, we, this needs to stop now because we don't want more people in the future to continue taking this uh, risky route. So that's what made me think about this sort of this e immediate or imminent and the long-term uh, concerns. And then, of course, along the borders, you, or in terms of the borders, you, you, you will have different stakeholders here. They can think that the, the dots on the map here are, are different uh, states, uh, stakeholders uh, involved in these, uh, these uh, debates, uh, where some will argue for, uh, for no borders, others will uh, remind about the fundamental uh, sovereignty of states to be able to control who enters and, and, and don't, and, and others are much more firmly on the, on the uh, borders need to be closed or, or, or uh, sealed off to, uh, to, uh, to irregular uh, migration. What's the there it came. Thank you. Good. Uh, I will uh, soon wrap up and uh, hand over to, to my other uh, colleagues. Uh, here is just a few, few uh, sort of observations again to, to come back to, this, uh, to these different responses uh, to, uh, uh, to the situation along the European borders. So we have different means of crossing these, these borders. We have longer and shorter sea stretches between uh, Turkey and Lesbos. Uh, it's relatively shorter, but still a very uh, risky uh, route, and you have the longer sea stretches along the central Mediterranean between Libya and Italy. You have land borders, and the air uh, lines, of course, being much less accessible uh, to uh, many of those seeking uh, international protection uh, today, and um, which is why uh, these uh, sort of very risky routes are being the main ones used uh, 
uh, in this context. Uh, we also have different means of controlling uh, and surveilling these uh, these borders, uh, and the maritime borders are much more difficult to, to seal off and to to put up a fence along the maritime border, for instance. Which is also why there's been this back and forth over the, all these years of, of investments in more sophisticated surveillance over the maritime borders, of, uh, of having border control vessels uh, operated by Frontex, uh, all the while um, firmly stating that the Frontex vessels would not have a search and rescue mandate because they didn't want more people uh, coming over uh, to be rescued, but they, they wanted to firmly state that we are controlling the border. So, so th these things that were a little bit contradictory in, in themselves. Because there is, as I just mentioned, a fundamental obligation to provide search and rescue uh, at sea for, for, any, for any vessel. Uh, and irrespective of where those in distress uh, come from. Um, and we have the, these different manifestations of the humanitarian borders that we will uh, soon, uh, soon go through, from uh, the risks of drowning at sea, the camps in Greece, in northern France, uh, the forests between Poland and Belarus, and different types of detention uh, across Europe. Um, and what has been, as I mentioned in my introduction, what has been uh, at the very core of the, the constitution of these humanitarian borders uh, is both the, these means to control them and prevent, seek to prevent people from crossing them and from, from moving on further. Uh, but it's also the, the massive amounts of, um, of spontaneous um, volunteers uh, wanting to, to provide assistance uh, to, to migrants uh, from those arriving in Greece to others arriving um, um, elsewhere. Um, these have been, we'll talk more about that in the following session as well, these have been also discussed as sort of citizen humanitarians sort of wanting to show their engagement as citizens uh, contesting these border control measures uh, by, uh, by providing this assistance sort of, so it's not just providing assistance, but it's also sort of showing, taking a stance uh, towards, um, towards the border control uh, regimes. Uh, so this is also, uh, um, we've seen maybe some trajectories from some volunteers saying, I don't care about the politics, I'm just here to, to provide assistance to fellow human beings who would otherwise not have anything, to those who then over time also see, well, uh, I see there's, <laughs> uh, th there's a situation uh, lasting, I don't think it's fair that uh, we as volunteers, we volunteers sorry, should be the only ones providing this uh, basic assistance, uh, and to these... Um, Movements also becoming more politically engaged in, in, in lobbying uh, the different their own governments and lobbying the EU to uh, to, to reconsider these these practices. So, so here we have also these uh, these tensions coming back between the state refusal to provide more assistance um, to to migrants uh, and to to sometimes. Uh, a slightly different situation that we uh, might have seen in Norway with uh, the state initially being more um, uh, on its reserves in terms of providing assistance, but also quickly realizing that this space was being filled by, by volunteers uh, distributing food um, 
just uh, very close to here uh, in Toyon, where the police registration uh, unit uh, was, to, to the authorities also re realizing that their efforts needed to be stepped up and, uh, and, and uh, there were calls for this will be an imminent humanitarian situation uh, in Norway, uh, which was maybe not really the case, but there was a sort of mobilization around uh, the crisis is coming here uh, to little Norway as well, and that the authorities, after all, stepped up um, one could say also that's a way to take control over the situation rather than, than just letting this um, uh, tension in a way be out in the open between uh, those wanting to help and those uh, wanting to manage uh, the, the refugees. Uh, we also see some sort of uh, tensions and contestations between the spontaneous volunteers and the more established NGOs. Uh, many of these grassroots uh, volunteers initially would call on, on the large and established and professional humanitarians. Where are they? Uh, if, we, if they are not, uh, uh, or if we weren't here, uh, nobody would have, uh, have anything. So, so they, they have also sort of filled a space of providing a quicker, more flexible uh, aid and also sort of finding an identity in in the in between um, in between here um, I've been talking for a long time now but I will share a very brief uh, a snapshot of uh, uh, um, of a again a debate that I followed around the camp uh, or the uh, and the refugees and migrants in Calais uh, before I give the hand uh, over to the next uh, speakers uh, and this uh, idea of the, the the fear of saving lives is something I saw and, and sort of co uh, wrote about in the context of the Mediterranean, but also seeing how this unfolded in the, in and around the Calais. Um, and this was in uh, twenty um, uh, in October twenty sixteen. The French authorities decided to dismantle the, the the what has became called the jungle in Calais. Uh, and wanted to, to, to dismantle it and had an agreement with the UK to relocate some of them and France would re relocate uh, others. Uh, after the jungle was dismantled, uh, the, um, uh, there were initiatives to, to also provide assistance to, to those migrants who were, who were still there by pro putting up uh, public showers and, and food distribution. Um, and but the mayor of Calais uh, re refused this and put out a, a ban on uh, on the, putting up this uh, basic assistance infrastructure. Then the regional um, uh, court ruled that it was illegal to ban the distribution of food, but nevertheless they. Uh, overruled the, uh, this uh, this judgment and and uh, and still implemented the ban on distribu uh, distributing food aid. So that also illustrates this fundamental fear of providing very basic assistance to to other uh, human beings. Um, so I just wanted to, to start off with this uh, illustration here. Uh, I would now like to pass the word to. Um, uh, Heidi Mokstad, who is a postdoctoral uh, fellow at uh, the Christian Mikkelsen Institute uh, and who has written also about uh, the many of these volunteers uh, and uh, the drop in the ocean. Uh, 
in Greece. And we also have uh, a little team uh, from a drop in the ocean uh, with us. And also Trude Jakobsen here is the uh, initiator and founder of a drop in the ocean. Um, I'll right away give you the word, um, if we have maybe a microphone coming. Uh, in the meantime, I can also say that, that the next speakers uh, will be uh, our PRIO colleague, Maisie Fitzmaurice, who is an MA student and a research assistant here at PRIO, uh, writing uh, in her MA thesis about detentions in the UK. So we'll hear about that right after. Uh, then we have Anna Rateka here, uh, who is a researcher at the Institute of Sociology at the Jagiellonian sorry, University in Krakow. Uh, so very much looking forward to hearing you also talk about the borders in Poland. Uh, after you, we have Trygve Torsson, uh, right behind here, advi advocacy advisor at um, MSF um, Norway, who will talk also about his work uh, on the ocean Viking uh, in the Mediterranean and more generally MSF's work in this area. And then we have uh, finally also my colleague Lisa Endregar Hemat, a research assistant here at PRIO, who has written her MA thesis uh, on the research into using AI uh, in the screening of migrants um, into the EU. And finally, after that, uh, we will have Polly Pallister Wilkins. Uh, I think I said assistant professor, but I meant associate professor at the University of Amsterdam afterwards. Yes, <laughs> this doesn't matter. <laughs> so we're looking forward to having your comments and reflections after that. You have had a microphone now. So please, uh, Heidi. Thank you so much for inviting me, Maria. And it's, it's nice to be back at PRIO. Before I started my PhD research, I was actually at the PRIO Research School. So this is kind of one of the places where I first thought about my ideas and developed them. And, and also I see a lot of people in the audience that contributed to my research, including key interlocutors. So, so that's, that's very nice. Um, yeah, so I'm a social anthropologist. And for my PhD, I did 18 months of fieldwork in Norway and Greece. And approximately six of them was on the Greek island Lesbos, which I will speak about today. And since I don't have so much time, I thought I should just flag a few um, things that I think is important uh, about the humanitarian border on Lesbos. And if anything is unclear or if you want to know more, uh, you can ask me during the break or Q&A. So the, the first thing I want to highlight is that the humanitarian border on Lesbos is deeply shaped by place-specific dynamics. So Lesbos, I'm sure many of you know, is forged by a long history of movement. And many of the island's inhabitants are themselves descendants of both refugees from Asia Minor, what is today Turkey. And uh, yeah, you can see this statue symbolizing at the, the harbor in Lesbos. Um, yeah, so this history really shapes how many local residents receive and interpret contemporary flows of refugees. Uh, but in different ways, because some see the newcomers um, sort of like their own grandparents or, or other relatives, and therefore feel strong empathy and connection, while others associate the influx of mostly Muslim refugees with Ottoman occupation, so kind of like contributing then to fear or suspicion. Um, and also due to its geopolitical location, Lesbos has been one of the most important gateways for asylum seekers to Europe since at least the early 2000s. So even though the situation in 2015, 2016 was dramatic, it was not uh, completely new. Uh, so what was new, you can say, is the scale and the pace of arrivals and also kind of the surge in global attention and people arriving from Northern Europe wanting to help. So um, these flows of ordinary European citizens or citizen humanitarians, they have contributed to a very fluid and fragmented humanitarian landscape. 
And some scholars have described this in critical terms as a form of crisis chasing or disaster tourism, and exemplified by the picture in the middle of the life jacket graveyard, which becomes sort of this memorial site. Um, I, I do think it's a lot more to say about this and also to, to nuance part of this, and a lot more to say about citizen humanitarianism, but I think Maria and other, other speakers will touch upon that. Um, so a few more points. So the humanitarian border on Lesbos can be characterized by a dialectic between bio and necropolitics. So violent exclusion, but also abandonment. So sort of state action, but also inaction. Uh, and obviously care and control. And uh, like other humanitarian borders, it has produced hierarchies of humanity and deservingness, but also kind of hierarchies of Europeanness, where Greece struggle to deal with the asylum situation is very often kind of seen to confirm their image as not properly modernized or not properly European. So in this border space, there are also many other negotiation and contestations taking place. Uh, for example, the question of who to blame. Is it the EU? Is it the right-wing government in Greece? Is it Erdogan? Is it refugees themselves? But also a question about what actors have the right and responsibility to intervene. Um, and the border is also a space where the identity and future of Europe is being negotiated. So, for example, some argue we should close the border to keep Europe white and Christian, and others say we must help and welcome refugees, at least in part to protect, protect the identity of Europe as this cosmopolitan liberal powerhouse and a human rights defender. And also on a more local level, there are negotiations about the identity and future of Greece and Lesbos. And I think, as an anthropologist speaking, I think it's important to keep in mind that people often have very close and immediate uh, attachments and concerns. So, for example, in Moura village, where I did part of my fieldwork, many of the residents were offended by having the proud name of their village associated with the infamous refugee camp. And they also, many of them, expressed nostalgic longing for supposed peaceful and idyllic village life prior to the crisis. Uh, yeah, so finally, there, I think there are a lot of interesting debates about how to understand and describe the violence and exclusions on Lesbos on European borderland more broadly. So some scholars, for example, Michael Burnett, has suggested we are now in an age of post-liberalism, and others see this as more of like liberalism or European liberalism showing its true exclusionary and racist nature. Um, there are also some who argue that we are now currently in the post-rights era, where asylum is no longer seen as a right, but a gift or charity and um, human rights are dead or at least lost most of its symbolic and aspirational power. And uh, I think one kind of indication of this, which also speaks to the topic of the conference tomorrow, is a letter written by refugees in the Moria camp in 2020 addressed to European leaders and public, where the refugees writing this letter basically write that they have studied um, the animal laws in Europe and discovered that they're actually treated worse than animals. And therefore, what they ask for is not human rights, but for the same rights as animals in Europe. And uh, I'll end by that. Thanks. Thank you very much, Heidi. Now to Maisie. Hello, and uh, thank you for having me. Um, so I'm just going to... Is that echoing a lot? Okay, okay. Um, I'm just going to give a brief snapshot, uh, snapshot from the context of um, immigration detention in the UK, um, which is part of my thesis study. So, um, yeah, I see this as an example of resistance at uh, border sites. I'm looking at immigration detention as a part of the wider process of deportations. Um, deportation is used by states um, as a tool for enforcing extended border, extended border control, um, but in of itself it exposes some of the fictions and contradictions within the idea of fully controlling borders. 
Um, so by this I refer to the fact that um, the people who are vulnerable to deportation and the people who are actually deported are not the same. So while a large number of uh, people are vulnerable to deportation, only a very small minority of those are eventually deported. Um, but a significant portion of this group are detained in immigration detention centres for a period of time. Um, so in the UK, according to the Home Office, a person can only be detained if there's a realistic prospect of removal within a reasonable time scale. Um, but in reality, there is no upper time limit for the length of detention, so it's effectively, effectively indefinite. Um, so the focus of my thesis um, are the people who find themselves detained in the UK and trapped in this gap between the internal and external territory at uh, an internal bordering site, but on the edge of deportation, but then still with a realistic uh, prospect that they may never be deported and actually be um, allowed to remain in the UK. Um, my study is based on experiences, of, um, experiences in immigration detention in the UK, and I'm going to use um, written testimonies from detainees for my analysis. Um, so in the UK, detention centres are run uh, by private companies for profit, and they make use of prison architecture and prison management systems. Um, although they're not formally punitive institutions. Um, deportability and thus detainability encompasses people with a wide variety of legal statuses and a wide variety of migratory histories and experiences. So in this context, I'm not only focusing on refugees and asylum seekers. Um, in my case, I'm exploring um, the contestations against boarding practices made by detainees. Um, the data I'm using comes from um, a blog which is run by anti-deportation activists who publish testimonies from people detained across the UK detention estate. And what I've been exploring is how um, narrative or self-expression in this case can be understood in itself as a form of resistance. Um, the value of storytelling is exhibited in how people use this blog as an outlet to the public that otherwise does not exist. Um, and a number of different themes are emerging from the data. Um, it's not a summary of any final um, findings, but some preliminary themes. So a couple of different uh, themes I see in the data are, um, first one of a radically uh, political rejection of the system of immigration law, um, which sees the system as an inherently racist and discriminatory system by design. So this seeks a more transformative type of justice and justice in an overarching way. Um, second narrative is one of um, narrative of contestation is a, a pragmatic and reform, reformist-based uh, argument that contests certain types of uh, practices um, within or outside detention, and that seeks to argue why some people should be exempt from those uh, practices and those measures. Uh, for example, based on individual vulnerability or individual cases for asylum and also expressing a, a disbelief that the system that they're currently in is actually legal. And uh, one of the third things I wanted to highlight is also a, um, a narrative of despair um, and hopelessness. So many people describe feeling uh, broken down and wanting to give up um, from the experiences they face um, within immigration detention, but um, I would still characterize this as a form of contestation uh, in the sense that the narrative itself and the action of submitting the statement to this blog is a way of an expression is a way of expressing a contestation against one's own deportation. Um, these themes are not necessarily distinct from one from one another and can be woven together within one person's um, testimony and in one person's narrative. Um, so, in my project, I'm going to continue to explore how uh, narrative is used as a form of resistance against uh, bordering practices. Um, thank you for having me. Look forward to the discussion. Thank you. 
Thank you very, very much, Maisie. Uh, now I'll give the word to Anna Rateka. Hello, uh, thank you Maria for the invitation, great to be here. And yeah, this will be a short snapshot about the Polish pillars on the border. And I presented two uh, uh, slides I'm presenting because I couldn't help but use two <laughs> pictures. So I wanted you to see the uh, map where is the, the border between Poland and Belarus, which is about 400 kilometers long. And uh, you see it's, uh, it's not only Poland, but also Lithuania and Latvia. And the situation is very similar over there. And also please uh, uh, see how close it is to the Ukrainian border and uh, we all know uh, the situation over there and how Polish borders became very open uh, by February uh, 24th. Uh, yeah. Okay, and uh, this really, uh, this topic resonates in so many ways with what Maria said and as this expression Polish jungle, which uh, resonates with the jungle in Calais and this is the way the uh, people crossing the border talk about uh, about this place, which is uh, noted by one of the researchers from the group Researchers on the Border, uh, who was established in, last year in Poland. So this is uh, this is land border. It's mostly forest, the dam forest. It, the important thing is primary forest, one of the oldest forests in Europe. So it's really difficult to get there, difficult to be there. And the the, the migratory route was, was like become active last year uh, during last summer and uh, there have been um, like nobody knows how many people are traveling there but last three months of 2021 it was more than 40,000 attempts to cross the border uh, today uh, the uh, hum uh, volunteers uh, note like to 150 uh, contact, like they have 150 people are contacting them each week. So they have there are about probably hundreds of people uh, there in the mean, uh, like now. Uh, so Polish government uh, established a zone uh, over the area uh, to prevent crossing the border, but also pre to prevent journalists to come there and prevent the humanitarian help being. Uh, uh, being delivered, so it affects the whole uh, the whole region, which has also like rich, very rich history with Jews uh, hiding in this forest during the Second World War, with the uh, killings of Belarusian community in the 1940s by Polish nationalists. So it's really, really like uh, many tensions uh, have been uh, there over the years. And there's a lot of politics going on there. So um, Polish government, for Polish authorities do everything not to prevent, uh, like to prevent people from applying for asylum. They're using pushbacks, which where it's kind of legalized, uh, which is, uh, of course, against both Polish national law, but also international and U uh, U European Union law. However, we have, to, we have to say and that what's happening there, it's with a like, silent or not very silent agreement from the European Union, which is kind of happy that somebody is... is uh, 
securing this eastern uh, EU border. And uh, so people who cross the border over there uh, are kind of trapped in this forest because they cannot either get to Polish uh, side or, uh, and they are also prevented from going back by Belarusian, uh, Belarusian forces. And uh, they are wandering in this uh, forest for, for days, weeks, or even months. Uh, they are attempting many times, like 20 times, uh, to cross the border. And now Polish government started to uh, build this wall, which definitely will not cover the whole border because there are many, yeah, like I said, dumps, rivers. So it definitely will have holes. And it still does not prevent people from... Uh, coming there. And also what I want to ask, the uh, grassroots humanitarian help is being organized with lack of the big NGO actors being uh, present and it's also criminalized uh, and uh, there have been some cases in the court against activists uh, who were uh, accused of uh, smuggling people all. Yeah. Thank you. So we can discuss more. Thank you very much, Charlotte. Now I'll pass the word to Trygve Thorsson from MSF Norway. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me, um, representing the Sans Frontières. Um, so as Maria said in the introduction, I spent um, some time on the ocean biking. That was back then run by, by MSF and uh, SOS Mediterranée. Now the vessel is operated only by SOS Mediterranée and uh, MSF. We have our own uh, ship called the uh, Geo Barons. Both of them are actually um, registered in the Norwegian Shipping Registry, so they have a Norwegian flag, making it especially relevant uh, here in Norway, obviously. Um, spent, I spent two months on board um, we did seven rescue operations, rescuing 555 people. Uh, but then after that, I followed also uh, the context from Oslo and from, from our office in Amsterdam uh, as well. Um, so I wanted to talk about three things. Maria mentioned a lot of it already, but I wanted to highlight three things that I think contribute, that from our side contribute to making the situation in the Mediterranean, a humanitarian one. Um, I don't think we need to go into details on the context, but so far this year, more than 1,300 people are registered as dead or, or missing in the Central Med only. Uh, more than um, 16,000 people have been intercepted and forcibly returned to, to Libya. Uh, and we've seen an increase in the attempted crossings of around 60% actually from 2021 to 2022. Um, just to go through some of the main numbers. But these three things that from our side at least contribute to making it a humanitarian situation right now is the starting point I think is the lack of uh, search and rescue capacity. Maria already mentioned after Mare Nostrum, which means our sea, I think. So really, the Italians really calling the Mediterranean their sea, taking responsibility for that area. Since then, there's been a withdrawal of state-led proactive search and rescue capacity, meaning that 
for the last years, a handful of NGOs, some of them starting also as really like volunteer initiatives, are left to, to fill the void. Including MSF, we've been there uh, since uh, 2015. In the beginning, we have three ships. Now we have only one. But our teams have been involved in rescuing 85,000 people over those uh, years. But in addition to the lack of state-led search and rescue capacity, the, there's also been criminalization and maybe not direct criminalization, but what we maybe could call administrative harassment of the NGOs, using port state controls, for example, to detain ships for, for a long time. Geo Barons last year was detained for only 24 days, which is one of the shortest detention periods of any ship. But that al also obviously contributes to a lack of search and rescue capacity at sea when the, even the NGOs are blocked from doing that. Um, then there's a third way as well where we can call it maybe non-cooperation non with the NGOs at sea. Frontex are surveying the, the area and there's been, well, we are quite confident that on a number of occasions uh, Frontex had, had, they've had info about boats in distress but they have not shared that information with NGOs being at sea. Then the second point is the delay that Maria already also mentioned on the delayed disembarkations or, or standoffs. What happens when after rescue is that the ship is requesting a port of safety or a place of safety following maritime law, requesting that to the nearest coastal states. But as we cannot um, disembark in Libya because Libya cannot be considered a place of safety, we also request to the Coast Guards of Italy or the Maritime Coordination Centers of Italy and Malta to assign a place of safety. Um, Malta is either non-responsive, has been for the last years, either non-responsive or instructing us to contact someone else. Italy has often also been non-responsive, but as you know, after then often days, sometimes weeks, the ships have usually for the last years been, been assigned a place of safety in Italy and disembarked the survivors, um, mainly on, on Sicily. Uh, with the exception now of, uh, of the ocean biking uh, last month. Yeah, when I was on board, we were stuck at sea uh, for almost two weeks with 104 survivors on board, which was manageable. Um, Last month, the Geo Barons was also stuck for 10 days, I think, with 572 people on board. Obviously, these standoffs and that those delays in disembarkation prolongs the suffering of the people on board, delays also medical attention to them, protection, uh, assistance, um, but also it contributes to a lack of search and rescue capacity because the vessels are blocked from going back at sea. Um, yeah, then the third point that Marie, I think, did not mention, but that I think is a key part of, of the picture as well, is the returns to Libya. Because, as I mentioned in the introduction, 16,000 people only this year have been intercepted by the Libyan Coast Guard and brought back to Libya. We know that the majority of these people that are brought back end up in the official Libyan detention centers, 
We have access to some of them as, as MSF. We can do mobile clinics, giving very simple medical assistance in the detention centers and make referrals out of them if necessary. Um, so we, we know, we see that the conditions there are horrible. We've also been forced to suspend our operations there after shooting incidents, direct killings of detainees. We've seen a number of cases of sexual violence. There's also been reports of straightforward torture in these detention centers. So that's also part of the humanitarian uh, situation, more at large. Um, these returns started, I think, in 2017 after the first memorandum or agreement between the Italian government and the Libyan at the time. That agreement was renewed last month, beginning of last month, and it's been backed and funded partly the program has been partly funded by the EU as well for, for those years. And what we hear from people on board is that several of them have also tried to escape, tried to flee from Libya by sea several times. So they really end up in a cycle of, uh, of suffering. Yeah, that's what I wanted to highlight in a couple of minutes. Really uh, a tension between care and control that really is... Uh, has quite a significant uh, human cost, I think. Thank you very much. And then finally, you will hear more about this fellow with Lisa. Thank you uh, for having me and thank you to the other speakers for your very interesting insights. Um, my name is Lisa and I work as a research assistant here at PRIO. Maria was my contact person and also my supervisor for my thesis was here. <laughs> and I focus my research on the trends of digitalization of EU borders and how these are evolving now with EU funded research projects. Specifically artificial intelligence technologies for managing migration. So my research uh, was a case study of the Horizon 2020 project called iBorder Control, which is short for Intelligent Portable Border Control System. And the aim of this project was to evaluate the credibility of third country nationals coming into Europe with the aims of, or the belief that this would enhance, um, with the desire to enhance efficiency and security. So the, um, the technology that they developed is called an automated deception detection system, which is basically just an artificial intelligence lie detector. Um, and how it worked was that the travelers would have to pre-register online uh, by uploading their passports, visa, and sometimes proof of funds. After doing so, they would be taken to a new web page where they would meet <laughs> this lovely looking man and would undergo an online interview where your web camera is on and analyzing your micro facial gestures while answering questions. And so the belief here is that uh, the micro gestures could reveal signs of stress or anxiety and that these indicate deception. So after undergoing this interview, the traveler would get a QR code that they would have to bring with them to the border 
And then the border agent would scan this code and see the deception uh, credibility uh, score, basically. You wouldn't know this yourself, though, when you're traveling. And there are obvious scientific limitations to this. However, I left that discussion for other people and instead focused on the experimental technologies that are targeting migrants that are being developed at the moment. So the European Commission responded to criticism of this um, project, which was very vast, by saying that they did not envision a, uh, the deployment of an actual working system, and this was merely research. The similar, uh, a similar notion was said by interviewees that I interviewed from Frontex's Research and Innovation Unit. They said that this is galaxies away and I did not need to worry about this at the moment. <laughs> However, the other seven experts that I talked to, including the data protection officer for this project, said that we cannot consider this just research. I will briefly explain, there are many reasons why, but I'll briefly explain three of these reasons that I found. Um, the first is that this would practically move the beginning of your travels to your own home, uh, resulting in an externalization of borders by digital means. And this was framed as a more compassionate alternative um, to uh, border controls. And even the Frontex interview is saying that this is more hygienic because you wouldn't have to wait in long lines at the borders. Yeah. <laughs> However, in reality, externalization may threaten opportunities to seek protection. Secondly, the tool could lead to a dangerous practice where pre-registration could become a barrier for seeking protection. Just imagine someone who's had to hide their identity for many years, now having to answer questions to an avatar uh, who's also looking extremely creepy. <laughs> it's hard enough to be honest with an actual human border agent. So I think this shows a clear lack of understanding of how migration works and what it looks like in practice. Thirdly, iBorder Control is, in my view, an inhumane tool because third country nationals are perceived to be deceitful and that extraordinary technologies are necessary to evaluate their credibility. And this is all done in a view that we need to combat terrorism, crime and irregular migration which causes an um, emergency mindset. And this pushes boundaries for acceptable risks and also what is considered a proportionate response. The result is a tool that is inherently degrading. So my conclusion with my thesis was that we need to discuss the development of these technologies while they're being developed to ensure that it could become tools for inhumane or not even be used of at all if they're considered inhumane. So I also have a policy brief about this, which is on the table behind. <laughs> thank you, thank you, yes. Um, if you want to read that, and also I'm very open to having conversations, uh, if, yeah, and answering questions. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Elisa, as well. And yes, uh, this fresh off the press policy brief published this week is available for you uh, on the table uh, behind there, along with uh, other publications uh, from the project. Uh, thank you so much uh, to all of you for sharing these uh, insightful uh, experiences and your study into these different types of humanitarian borders. And now I'm very happy to have uh, Polly Pallister-Wilkins to share some comments with us, whose work has been uh, on the, whose work on the humanitarian borders over the past uh, years has been of great inspiration uh, to me and I think to many others working in this area. So we're happy to have your comments and then we'll have a discussion 
all of us with, uh, with you in the audience if you have further questions and comments. Can we, can we get maybe rid of the creepy Mark Zuckerberg dude? He's super creeping me out, and I mean, I'm, I'm an, a very privileged traveler, but I'm getting freaked out by him, so goodness only knows what would, yeah, okay. Oh, alrighty. Well, I mean, I think I have quite a difficult job, actually, um, because there is a lot to say. Um, how, long, how long do I have so that I don't abuse my hospitality, your hospitality? Okay, oh my goodness me. Okay, so yeah, I mean, this is going to be quite tricky. I mean, I have to thank you for inviting me, um, and thank you to my interlocutors. Oh, and I'm sorry, I know. I, I mean, I feel like that on a daily basis when I'm thinking about this, to be honest. I think that's, that's a very, very human response. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm going to, there's been lots of discussion, and I think maybe everyone's getting a sense of the complexity of, of the humanitarian border from all of this. Um, you know, we've had sort of a very sort of focused in um, look at, at Lesbos and then some of the sort of the specificities of like island geographies um, in sort of determining the types of humanitarian, well, first of all, the types of humanitarian needs that are generated and then the types of humanitarian responses that, that appear. Um, I'm not going to touch on that. I could talk about that all day. Um, we've also had, you know, a very, uh, you know, in-depth sort of understanding and look at sort of the potentialities for uh, search and rescue, for more led by sort of NGOs in the Mediterranean, some of the tensions that that produces as well. Could also talk about that all day, not going to do that. Um, could also talk about the sort of the, the, <laughs> the increasing attempts by states to harden their borders ever more by building incredibly violent border fencing. Could talk about that all day. In fact, that's actually how I ended up researching all of this in the first place. I went to Evros to look at the border fence in 2012. I was there for two weeks. I had permission from Frontex to go to the closed military zone border, got to the fence, it was really dull. It was just a fence. And I was like, I'm here for two weeks. And then I discovered that they were rescuing people from the river, and actually, you know, it became this tension that they have, border police have, between caring and controlling, between having to rescue people. Um, otherwise, they, you know, are heavily criticized by Europeans like me, who are, you know, this is an abuse of people's human rights. Um, and if they don't, or if they rescue them and then don't push them back into Turkey, heavily um, criticized by people not like me. I'm just laying my politics out for you here now. People a lot like me, European politicians, um, some of which um, campaign to have my country leave the European Union. Um, <laughs> I'm from the UK originally, if you can't tell. Um, uh, you know, say that, that Greece is not doing a good enough job and they're just letting everybody in, right? <sighs> So I'm actually going to talk a little bit more about state actors, because I don't think we've had much on state actors. And I'm going to talk about this kind of the, the logic of the humanitarian reason in, in state border control and what it does. And I'm going to shift away. We had a lot of discussion about Europe. I'm going to shift away to two other little examples. I'll come back to Europe, but I'm going to start in America, the global hegemon. You know, why, why not? Uh, <laughs> I mean, is it a hegemon just because we say it is? I don't know. Anyway, I'm reproducing America as a hegemon um, in, the, in this example. In 2005, the US border, Customs and Border Patrol had been increasingly under, um, 
under attack, that's probably not the quite the correct term, but he had been lobbied by activist groups, aid groups who are active on the US-Mexico border, active in the Sonoran Desert, around the ways in which, um, you know, heavy border policing, the increasing use of border fencing um, on the US-Mexico border was leading to increasing border deaths, right? So we're talking about organizations like No More Deaths, for example, saying that, you know, the US Customs and Border Patrol were not doing enough to save lives on the border. And, you know, the, US, the, the Customs and Border Patrol were famously on record as saying, well, we, we are actually using the desert and we are using the harshness of the terrain as a deterrent. We are going to use geography as a way, you know, as a, as, a, as a border patrol officer, as a way of keeping people out of our territories. However, in response to some of these humanitarian demands, somebody, I don't know who, someone in the Customs and Border Patrol, it's really funny, the, 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 the Customs and Border Patrol office is right next to USAID. And I'm like, it's like my research in like a building, architecturally. Completely not the point. M maybe someone from USAID also told them that, that humanitarianism is a force multiplier. There you go, I knew I'd connect it somehow. Um, someone in Customs and Border Patrol actually realized that if they actively, if the Customs and Border Patrol actively went out searching for migrants, life seekers in distress, this would increase their operational capacity, both in terms of boots on the ground and in terms of resources. They, would, they could increase their resource capacity you know, exponentially. And I mean, of course, we've seen how Frontex's um, uh, resources have grown exponentially since it was first founded. Right? But Customs and Border Patrol realized that actually, through searching for people to save lives, this actually increased their capacity at border capture. Another example of this, not quite on the issue of, of capture, but on the issue of attempting to, to use the humanitarian reason to, uh, to st strengthen borders or perhaps even to prevent mobility in the first place, is the Australian example. So now I'm shifting to Australia. Often we talk in Europe about a lot of the things that come to Europe originally started in Australia. And for example, the, ar the argument that the only way to save lives is to stop the boats, famously said by former Prime Minister Tony Abbott, himself a boat migrant, I would just like to point out. Yeah, the jokes, they write themselves, right? Tony Abbott famously said that an only way to save lives, people crossing irregularly from Indonesia, was to stop the boats. We saw the same logic being used by people around why the EU-Turkey statement, for example, was brought into being. Right? We had to prevent these irregular crossings um, from, from Turkey in, into Greece, into, onto the Aegean Islands. Again, because these, these crossings were dangerous. We had to create an environment in Europe that may, meant crossing was sort of seen as so dangerous. It was seen as reception, was seen as so perilous. The conditions were so, were so inhumane that people would not want to come. And we had to do that in Europe because actually too many migrants arriving, too many life seekers arriving was increasing right-wing sentiment. And actually we had to defend human rights by preventing other people's human rights. People literally made this argument, right? <laughs> right? So we had to stop fascism by preventing people from 
life seekers, refugees, from entering Europe. And in the process, through saving their lives. So that, what I would say, is sort of one of the ways in which, or many of the ways, in which the humanitarian reason plays itself out discursively, but also operationally in border control. There are other ways, which I'm not going to get into. I could also talk about the way in which it extends operational capacities, for example, in the Mediterranean, etc., etc. But similar dynamics to what we see on the US-Mexico border also actually play out from state side, right? The instrumental, kind of the use instrumentally of humanitarianism from, from state uh, sides into sort of the way in which it extends capture capacity within the Mediterranean. But all of these, this what I've set out to sort of discuss, all of this, and I think when many of us discuss sort of the need for saving, you know, the lack of saving, the failures of saving, you know, the way in which saving lives is used instrumentally to bolster state capacity, and there's a long history of this, right, within, within humanitarianism, states instrumentally using the huma humanitarian concern to actually bolster capacity, increase levels of intervention, capture undesirable populations, you know, colonialism is rife with it. Um, but what, you know, what many of the things that we don't see, when civil society like calls, for example, for more rescues, I'm thinking, you know, for example, in the UK, there are every time, you know, there's a, there's a tragedy now in, in the English Channel, there's a call from civil society to, you know, something must be done. The UK Coast Guard needs to intervene. You know, people donate thousands and thousands, millions of pounds to the Royal National Lifeboat Institute every time Nigel Farage says something racist. That's really good, you know? Like, it's, it, civil society is acting. <laughs> However, <laughs> no, and this annoys me very much because this is really the core of my research. When we do this, no one ever stops, and, and I blame journalists for this as well, nobody ever stops to ask the question, why? Why do we need to, to raise millions of pounds? Why do I need to donate money every month to MSF so they can go and rescue people in the Mediterranean? I do. Right? But wh why do I need to do that? Why? is somebody having to get a tiny little dinghy costing 3,000 euros from Lesbos to Turkey. No, that's the wrong way around. <laughs> from Turkey to Lesbos. When the ferry from Ivalik to Mytilini costs 21 euros. Why do they have to pay thousands of euros to cross the English Channel in a dinghy when I can catch the Eurostar? Nobody ever asked this question, and I think this is one of the, the my biggest concerns, my, the biggest argument I make in my research, is humanitarian borders, humanitarian border work is absolutely essential to address the violence of borders and unequal mobility, but what it doesn't do, and you know, people will agree with me on this, because this is not the work, this is not the aim of humanitarianism, it's to address the crisis, right? not to engage in structural politics. We do not address the underlying political reasons as to why people are dying at borders and why all of this humanitarianism has to take place. I'm going to end it there. Thank you.
Thank you. Thank you so much, Polly, for, for sharing uh, these uh, insights and also thought-provoking comments, of course. Uh, I'll now suggest that the two of us sit up there and we'll also have still the other contributors here uh, in the discussion. Uh, I'll also let my uh, good colleague uh, Aisha Bala Akal, who is a project assistant on the Yemo Border project, in addition to working on many other projects here, and who also actually wrote her MA thesis on the Australia's externalization of, of its borders. So we also have an, another policy brief over there on that, uh, on that topic and how Europe is in inspired by those uh, those practices. Uh, you will uh, chair uh, our um, discussion and uh, feel free also in the audience if you have any any comments or questions. Yes, uh, thank you so much everyone for your incredibly insightful comments. Uh, we will go back to the panel members now in case there are further reflections and then we'll open the floor for a quite a brief Q&A session because we do have around five minutes uh, but the session is being recorded, so please do introduce yourself when you take the word. And we can just do a raise of hands. Hi, Cindy Horsett-Prio. Um, thanks very much for bringing up this instrumental use of uh, the humanitarian concern. I was having similar questions and I wanted to follow up a little bit from your last point um, and also Maria's point on the increasing indifference. So I was very curious to see whether you have reflections on, okay, is that the impact of media, these things becoming more invisible or a narrative that's created that excludes the viewer's responsibility? Uh, what is it because it's because we're becoming immune or seeing the complexity and alternative stories? I think it's really important to move on from where you uh, kind of ended. And then secondly, also on the citizen humanitarianism, a point that links a little bit with that. So this Turian example here in, in Oslo, uh, what we saw is many people with backgrounds very similar. So refugees, migrants, um, they acted as citizens of Norway and they went out to the streets and they said, I know what it means to be in this situation and no one should be treated like this in Norway. So I think that that's actually a really interesting starting point. So you have new citizens taking these steps and taking that responsibility because they see there's something that needs to be done. So yeah, I guess I have these questions about responsibility. Yes. Okay. Do what you, would you okay. want to <laughs> I mean, I think on the issue of indifference, I mean, I do think the the media plays a big role, right? I mean, it, we're not seeing it in, in the news like we used to. And then this is having actually huge effects um, on the ground, right? So, for example, NGOs in Lesbos are seeing huge decreases um, in funding. Some are really, really struggling now to meet the needs, the continued needs of, of people that are still... Um, incarcerated on the island, um, partly because attention has shifted to Ukraine, um, but also just partly because it's just not in the it's not in the news anymore, right? It's out of sight, out of mind. Um, but also in terms of indifference, I would also answer that a little bit in going back and, and maybe link it to your to your point about sort of also when we act about this is Norway or this is that. Blah, blah. Um, to also this point where you know we raise it, this is not Europe, right? It was on the, the it was the it's the graffiti outside the old Moria, right? This is not Europe. We see this all the time, 
And yet I'm like, but it is Europe. And actually, what is that doing? That's a displacement of responsibility. And when we say this is not Europe, we, we're effectively, we're, it's a move to innocence, right? It's what Gloria Vecca would call a form of white innocence, in which therefore we, we remove responsibility from ourselves. You know, if this is not Europe, then Europeans don't have a responsibility to, to, to act on it, right? So I, don't, I think the indifference doesn't just come from sort of hard right, you know, highly racist, xenophobic um, narratives. I think, you know, liberal narratives can also reproduce it, which, you know, and, and, and therefore sort of exceptionalize Europe in particular kind of ways, very ahistorical kinds of ways, um, you know, creating various sort of forms of sort of amnesias around, you know, the historical violence um, that Europe has <laughs> spread around the world um, and, you know, created many of the structural conditions which actually foster the mobility that we see today. Um, but then in terms also of when we say, you know, uh, we, we, sort of re we reproduce Europe as a particular kind of exceptional space, which is itself a form of bordering. And then to the sort of the issue of when, when we also then make claims on, you know, as citizens of somewhere. And we also saw this quite recently in, um, in the Netherlands. So we also have... Uh, a right now a reception crisis in the Netherlands. Um, the Netherlands uh, reception services have massively scaled back um, their reception capacity as a, as a form of deterrence. And uh, earlier this year, MSF Holland actually sort of stepped in to start sort of, you know, providing basic needs for people encamped outside the reception center and with, with, the, and with the narrative, that which, which was intended to shock, which says, this is the first time we have ever had to act in the Netherlands, right? Which again, reproduces the Netherlands as some kind of exceptional space, reproduces, you know, it's supposed to be sans frontières, it's supposed to be uh, zone de grenze, but actually we're not, this is, this is still producing the Netherlands as a particular kind of a place, produces Norway as a particular kind of a place. We still make calls, you know, ref reflecting sovereign uh, power, sovereign territoriality, and within that reproduce, re reproduce borders. Yeah. Yep. Uh, absolutely. And I, f your question on the indifference, uh, Cindy, I'm, I'm also trying to think hard here to understand where it comes from, but I, uh, uh, in a way, can also only connect it to, um, the, the, on the one hand, the media coverage of it. Uh, it, it was in the news now, the, the fact that this, uh, that Ocean Viking had to, to wait for several days outside of Italy, it was not allowed, but it, but it wasn't um, so much in the headlines as it, it has been before in the summer of 2019 was the last time where there were a lot of standoffs like that. Uh, but I would say that even then we had started to become more accustomed to it than, than in 2015, 2016. Um, and, and when we exchanged briefly about it, so now that when Norway then accepted to take, although it sounded like they were almost taking all of them, but they were taking 20 and something uh, migrants among those uh, that uh, had... Um, uh, come to Toulon in, in France, um, because that's uh, a first. And, and then there's also this balance between Norway saying, we are doing this for humanitarian reasons, but it's an exceptional, we will not do it again. <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's, it, it's again this very balancing of care and control in, in one sentence that, that uh, we are better than Italy, uh, uh, who, who are not accepting and who are inhumane for not accepting to take them in. And Norway also stresses a stress that we don't have any formal responsibility any legal duty 
to risk to take the, the, these in. It's not because you say that say, it's a Norway re registered boat that we have any particular duty. Uh, but uh, for human, the human concerns uh, here, we will take in these. Uh, the, uh, we will help off in sort of European solidarity uh, with France. Uh, but and, and then I thought, oh wow, th this is a this is big news when I saw saw that, uh, and and. Uh, was almost expecting that there would be more discussion in Norway because it, it is really a first in, in that sense. It's not the first. Norway has also, after a lot of discussions and back and forth, accepted to relocate from uh, from Moria, for instance, after the fire there. But that was also after a lot of back and forth in addition to other relocations from, from Greece. But then they accepted to, to relocate 50 uh, individuals. Um, so, so, but, but, but now that they, it, it just became one mention. Uh, it wasn't almost even an article. It was sort of a mention in the news stream. Norway accepted too, and the state secretary uh, stresses the fact that uh, we don't have any formal obligation. It, it's an exceptional uh, one-time uh, uh, instance. Uh, but it, it remains. Maybe, maybe it's because there are many other things in the news. Uh, but there, yeah, there is always many things in the news but it, it didn't become more more than that uh, th that discussion so, so I think there is uh, there can be we can explain it maybe both by a fatigue among the audience following but also a less uh, less um, intense coverage of, of it uh, in the news media yeah my name is Henrik Kjemlarsen I study at Monash University in Australia but I'm starting from here uh, but just touching on what Frigo said the thing is it's not just Frontex who know like we have a lot of evidence showing that Frontex knows where the boats are and they're not communicating it. I can sit in Norway and follow the right sources and I can see where the boats are. And you can see that they're still there 10 hours later and then they're certainly not there anymore. So one of the things, this is to you, Polly, um, because Trigger said this. And then you see how uh, humanitarian workers are criminalized on the, on the water and they're criminalized for trying to provide basic need when they come to, for instance, Lesbos, right? Um, and then you see in Moria, in all the camps that have been in Greece, because I've been studying Greece now since 2015, uh, you see that they're met, refugees are met with physical violence and structural violence. And the point you made that no one asks the question, why this is? You know, no one asks these politicians, why do they have to pay so much money to go in a dinghy and not on the ferry? And so I'm just wondering, do you want to reflect on that? Why is this it? Because I don't think people understand, I think people don't have an understanding of how borders work, right? I think there isn't an understanding that, I mean, and I saw this amongst, you know, for example, many of the, many of the, the people who went out to, to, to Lesbos in 2015, there was no sort of understanding of sort of this, well, this is just how refugees move. They just, they move like this because they're destitute and poor. And so therefore they must be forced into these, you know, rickety boats. It's like the boat costs a hell of a lot more than you, your trip here. You came on EasyJet, you know. Um, I think it's a, it's a failure to reflect on, 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 on how our world in the last so many years has been constructed around unequal forms of mobility um, that, you know, insulate the global north and give global north states privileged mobility capacity um, and render those from global south states um, unable to, to uh, 
to uh, access the same privileges of mobility. And that's done through a whole host of, increasingly a whole host of uh, techniques, you know, visas, carriers liability, right? Carriers sanctions, there was a big thing, controversy earlier this week on Twitter of somebody, the KLM, not allowing someone from Ghana to board the plane in Ghana because they didn't have a visa for Schengen, but they were only transferring in Schengen and then they were going to Buenos Aires and they had a visa for Buenos Aires. But KLM was not going to risk taking that person on the plane in case they were not permitting, they were they were transiting, but in case they were not going to transit and they were going to use that as then an attempt to get into the, or seek asylum or whatever in the European Union, KLM would face a fine. Face a fine at worst, face the costs of then returning that person um, to Ghana. But then actually, if this kept happening, they would risk losing their operating license um, completely. Right? So, but I think, you know, people in the global north have no idea, like, the the, lev the 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 difficulty that people are faced with. I mean, I'm going to say this: there are people working for MSF who don't realize this either, right? I actually had to. I gave a whole uh, seminar to folks from from MSF Holland at a, one of their sort of you know away days on like decolonizing humanitarianism, and I gave this whole discussion around you know the history of colonialism and also the history of race and white supremacy in the construction of the humanitarian subject. The, Universal man as a white bourgeois male, you know. Um, and at the end, you know, and I broke it all down and I tried to make it super simplistic, even though some of the theory is really quite complicated. And the first question I had, and I said, you know, saying we're humanitarian is not enough, it's not an excuse for being racist, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean you're not a racist. The first question I had was, Oh, well, I, I'm, I'm, I can't be racist, I'm a humanitarian. The second question was someone from MSF Switzerland who was like, well, the f when I joined MSF, I stuck MSF stickers all over my Swiss passport because I'm a citizen of the world. And there was someone else in the audience, there was one, it was on MSF Teams, oh, MS, MSF Teams, MSF, MS Teams, Microsoft Teams. And there was, I could see one person of color on my screen. And when this colleague of his from the Geneva office said this, he got so angry. And I was so pleased that he was going to say, it. he was like, excuse me, it took me two years to get a visa to come and work in the office with you. We are not all citizens of the, or we may be citizens of the world, but we're differentially situated. So that's why I think that I'm just going to leave it there. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I just, want to address the I, I, I think I agree with you on a lot of things and, and, and especially with this white innocent and ten tendency to reproduce ideas and narratives of Europe and Norway and so on as exceptional and so on. I do think though as a uh, anthropologist working closely with uh, humanitarian volunteers and activists, I, d I think I do see more reflection and contestation as what you just recognize. I think I, th I think that's kind of a the mainstream narrative and uh, I do I, to give a concrete example with the graffiti on Muria world like it was that was the, I'm so sorry refugees this is not Europe was standing there for a long time but it was also other graffitis one was saying welcome to Europe one was saying welcome to prison uh, one was saying human rights graveyard that's the quite recent one so so not to kind of romanticize anything but I, d I do think it's important that we as, as scholars not think that um, for example, these debates about care and control are not 
only something we discuss kind of in, in inside the university because I, at least from from the humanitarian volunteers and activists that I I know this is debates that they are largely aware of maybe they don't describe it with kind of the jargon but they they do discuss these these issues and especially on Lesbos many activists are very critical to for example the decision to work inside Moria saying that that uh, normalizes. Uh, status quo and, and the current politics where some are aware of it but still argue that we should do it to prevent suffering so I, I yeah I guess, I guess I just want to add that while also agreeing that it's very problematic that even people arguing for more inclusive policies tend to reproduce dominant ideas of Europe and, and as exceptional and white innocent we can take one question and then I also suggest that we give uh, the other speakers an opportunity to also react before we wrap up you don't need to but if, if you want you can all right, thank you so much. My name is Terra Stole. Um, well, I come from Zimbabwe, but I'm working with the Invest of Agda. So I would like to say thank you so much, actually, for organizing this uh, in interesting event. But I've got perhaps, I would say, one and a half question, because the other one is going to be a follow-up from what has been asked earlier there. But I wanted, when you were speaking, there's something that became more interesting to me when you said, you know, you would realize I'd never taken, you know, much attention on that to say most of the big um, refugee camps that we find, to find them close to the borders. And I just want to ask you, do you think there's any substantiated logistical benefit of having them close to the borders? Or it's actually an idea of wanting to make it easy for people to be pushed away or pushed back from where they have come from. So that's my first question to you. Then, of course, the follow-up is to say, I mean, we're talking about uh, how Norway at some point then ended up accepting people because a ship had dogged in France. Do you really think some of the measures or acts that are being done by European governments are as a result of the principles of humanitarianism or it's just politics of optics to say, okay, we've eventually done A, B, or C. Thank you. Well, I can, uh, on, the, on the first question, on the, on the location of, of camps, uh, there are others who have studied many of these other examples more than me. Uh, but I, um, I, I would say that this comes back to this, uh, this tension in a way also in, in many host countries, not, not only in, in Europe, but the tension between uh, a reception and is this uh, um, uh, and an emergency situation that will be short-lived or will it be a long-term reception situation? And and also, as we see f with, uh, with Ukrainians fleeing Ukraine uh, since February, many would, in the first phase, hope to return back very quickly and would then maybe not be interested in going all the way to Norway, but maybe staying in, on the, in the neighboring countries. But, but, but we, what we have heard now after the summer and this fall is that Norway initially prepared to receive many, and then not so many came, but now preparing to receive more again, because uh, realizing that many of those who went initially to the neighboring countries are now seeking uh, other destinations for, for to... But, but realizing that the situation is not, uh, or the war is not uh, about to end I immediately. And I think that's also often the tension in many neighboring countries receiving people fleeing a wars and conflict in between uh, a reception and, and, but also uh, host countries wanting this to be short-lived and, and those also situations that are kept at being sort of precarious camps rather than something made for longer-term situations. All the while, 
those fleeing would uh, initially also hope to return back quickly, but then th that this becoming a prolonged situation. So it's, it's a little bit of a, a, a generic uh, answer, but I think those are some of the dynamics that we often often see in these uh, situations. Uh, the second question on the European uh, responses: Can you? Can you quickly, you said if, if these are humanitarian concerns that they have in their, I, I, I think that, they, again, I think they, uh, this has also gone through several sort of uh, phases uh, over the last decade, uh, from, from also the period in 2015 where it was more about a common effort, this is an exceptional situation, the Prime Minister of Norway said, we needed to mobilize a Dugnad, which means it's collective effort to welcome and receive uh, th those coming here. There was a moment of exception, but this moment of exception doesn't last for very long until it becomes, no, this, this needs to be controlled because it's too many and, and it, we c it can't last on forever. So where, where does this uh, sort of breaking point uh, come, come in is, uh, yeah is something that also also varies. But I'll, I know we've been going a little bit over time, but I wanted to just check if there are others. Yeah. Uh, I know uh, Trygve raised his hand. I'm happy to pass the mic on if you want to add something. Uh, there's a lot that I wanted to <laughs> <laughs> comment on. You're welcome ask. to stay for the next session as well. I will, <laughs> we'll I continue will. to discuss there. Also, yeah. um, but where to begin? Uh, thanks, Foley, for, for uh, sharing some of the internal out of the MS team's uh, world. It's, it's, it's very true. Um, uh, debates are going on, as you know, internally. I think um, on the Mediterranean in particular, uh, I think talking about the narrative that we're contributing to maybe reproducing is very interesting. Uh, visually, I think we are doing that more than we would like to, obviously, because also for us, uh, speaking of borders, it's hard to get working visas for the ships for people f that do not have a Schengen visa. So uh, the staff working on board the vessels are not representative of the global workforce of MSF. So we visually, we, we are then kind of reproducing a narrative that is very outdated, I think, with the imagery from, from the ship, which is interesting. Um, but another thing I wanted to ask, maybe if you've time to answer, or just as, a, as an open question, um, maybe over the last year, I feel the focus has shifted a little bit from, from the pull factor, the kind of fear to save lives, that kind of narrative, maybe more towards the narrative of instrumentalization that we see along the Polish, Polish borders. Uh, the EU... Are, is working on a on a regulation, commonly known, I think, as the in instrumentalization regulation. That is very concerning. We're also search and rescue at sea done by NGOs, at least in one of the drafts, um, was to be kind of uh, categorized as instrumentalization as well, which for us obviously is very very concerning. I don't know if if we're moving more towards that kind of framing away from the pull factor or if the two will still kind of exist in parallel. Um, but one thing that we didn't touch upon that I would like to mention and then leave the rest for later maybe. 
thanks, uh, thanks so much. I, I promised that I wanted to finish on, on the last note. But I'll thank you for that observation, Trigve. I think we'll take that with us in the also in the next session. But I think it's an interesting uh, observation that we indeed see sort of the the, request, the, the questions about whether Belarus is uh, instrumentalizing also sort of Europe's fear of migration and Turkey is instrumentalizing that fear. Uh, so, so it's interesting to to hear that observation also from your, uh, your perspective. Uh, I'll, I just want to finish off with this uh, very, very briefly to come back to, this is more a note on the research funding for this project, uh, being a funding from the uh, Research Council of Norway, not that <laughs> uh, being a young research talent uh, scheme uh, that was uh, that I was awarded in 2017, uh, and I just wanted to make a brief note on that in the current landscape where uh, research funding has uh, been more uncertain, and we just learned the happy news that the young research talent uh, grant was back <laughs> on the program for for next year, and so this is uh, merely just even if I've been working on this for over a couple of years with uh, both COVID and parental leave extensions over these years. Uh, it's also been a, a tremendous, um, a wonderful opportunity for us as researchers to have more of our time focused around one project uh, that this uh, scheme allows for. So it's merely just also to share with other, uh, other upcoming young scholars who are interested in, uh, in deepening their research in their areas that I would strongly recommend you to, to think along those, those lines. So just as a note uh, at the end on that. Thank you very much, everyone, for engaging in this discussion. And thank you very much to all, all the speakers and contributors. And Aisha for contributing.